Life Audio. Christian Parent Crazy World with Katherine Seegers is brought to you by Life Audio and is part of our Faith Toolkit series. For more inspirational faith-affirming podcasts, visit lifeaudio.com. Welcome to Christian Parent Crazy World, the podcast that tackles tough topics to help you be a godly parent in an ungodly world. I am your host, Katherine Seegers, and in today's episode, we will tackle this vitally important question. Do you or your kids battle a mental health disorder? If that is your reality, then this show is definitely for you. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, Mamas and Papas, and I've been wanting to do an episode on this topic for a very long time. I've actually had this conversation in the work since last year. My special guest today is Peyton Garland. She has a powerful testimony on how God is using a mental health disorder in her life for her good and for his Glory. Specifically, we're going to dive into the topics of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, and depression. I have quite a history there myself. Between the two of us, we will cover those bases. And along the way, we will provide insight, encouragement, hope, and point you towards healing. That's the plan for this episode of Christian Parent Crazy World. So let's get started. Is it hard to spark meaningful conversations with your kids? Whether you're a homeschool hero, planning activities for the next family vacation, or simply gathering around the dinner table, we've got something that can help. Introducing the Daily Family Conversation Starter by best-selling author Katie Clemens. This remarkable book offers 365 imaginative ways to connect with your children in just five minutes each day with prompts like, who made you laugh today? Or what would you do if you had a tail? These simple questions open up a world of laughter, curiosity, and deeper connections. From dinner time to sleepy time, the Daily Family Conversation Starter is your key to creating memories that will last a lifetime. Don't wait to transform your family's daily routine into an adventure of discovery and fun. Grab your copy of The Daily Family Conversation Starter today, wherever books are sold. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
Before we dive into today's topic, I want to remind you to check out my Instagram and Facebook pages. You will get to see clips from all of my interviews there, and you will find encouraging messages, and you'll get to know me better. While you're at it, drop me a line. Send me a message at at Katherine Seegers on Instagram, Katherine Seegers Speaker on Facebook, or an email at Katherine at KatherineSeegers.com. I'd love to hear from you. I met my special guest today through the Salem Web Network, where we are both employed. Peyton Garland is one of my incredible editors there, and she is a phenomenal writer in her own right. Brilliant. Her first book, Not So By Myself, was a bestseller with Karis Publishing, and she recently released her second book, Tired, Hungry, and Kind of Faithful, where exhaustion and exile meet God. Yeah, yeah, I think we could all use some help with these exhausting seasons of exile in life, especially if we or someone we love are battling a mental health disorder. Peyton recently wrote a couple of articles on mental health, specifically on OCD, which I will link in the show notes. These articles were so enlightening for me that I had to have her on the show to help us all out. In addition to all that, Peyton is a pilot's wife, a dog mama, a soon-to-be baby boy mama, and she loves coffee shop hopping, World War II fiction, and faithfully defending the Oxford comma. Yes, and amen to that. I stand with you there, Peyton. The world would be a much better place if we stopped dropping that little piece of British punctuation. Yeah, I just had to throw in a little writer humor there. (laughs) Without further ado, I am so excited to have you on the show. Peyton, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, it's, you know, it's great because you and I've conversed uh, over the last, uh, when did you start at Salem? Because I started with them at the end of 2021. Okay. So we've been conversing a couple of years via email. This is our first time seeing each other face to face. It's so nice to see your beautiful face and you're expecting a little guy, right? Yes. Yeah. I get to, I get to hide him on Zoom calls. (laughs) Yes. I am. I am large, but he is in charge these days. So, oh, well, you've got that healthy pregnancy glow, so we can see that, uh, or I can see that. And I'll be posting uh, reels of that so people can see it on Instagram. But so we're talking about mental health today, and it's Mental Health Awareness Month here in May. And I've, this is a topic I've really wanted to address for a while. And you're you've written a couple of really great articles on this topic, and of course, your book deals with some of your struggles as well. But I really I thought you would be you helped me as I was reading your article, particularly on OCD. A lot of people have some stereotypical thoughts about what that is. And you dispelled that and you really described what it was. I saw myself in some of it. I was surprised. I'm like, oh, so that (laughs) I deal with that way. So so when did you first notice that the way your brain functions is different than other people or I guess, you know, other people do deal with that, but it was less than ideal. Sure. So it's funny you asked that. My first day of therapy, we did a walk back session where she pretty much just made me gut myself as far as my past to figure out where OCD was coming from. Trauma can catalyze it. And so I didn't fully understand that I was abnormal or something was deeply wrong until probably my early 20s. But once she and I had that session Mm -hmm. at four and five years old, 
there there were little ticks and there were little things I did that obviously at four or five I didn't understand. And OCD wasn't a buzzword when I was younger. And so my parents wouldn't have known the difference either. So looking back, four and five years old, I already had some very obvious OCD tendencies. But for me, it was early adulthood where there was a breaking point of there's no way this is how every other adult is processing their day and healthily handling themselves. You know, obviously, this is a parenting show. What were some of those ticks that you you had back then? So maybe parents could recognize that in their own children. Sure. So one of the earliest things in talking with my mom now, she said that when I was a just a toddler, just old enough to yank off my clothes, I would yank off my clothes four to five times a day. If I got water on my clothes, a speck of dirt, I would just melt down. I was just done. I didn't. It was something that wasn't supposed to be there. And my response was pretty radical. I wanted a whole new set of clothes. So my mom said, you know, I just thought I didn't know what to think. I was the oldest. I was the first child. And so mom said, I just washed four to five outfits a day for you because you absolutely could not handle having even water, just something on you that wasn't supposed to be there. You fixated, you ruminated, and you you emotionally could not be walked down until you changed clothes. Wow. It's five or six. Uh, well, I'm sorry. That was that you first went back in your sessions to five or six, but this was as a toddler. Just it's, yeah, it's, it's old. Once I could process, this is my outfit. This is how it's supposed to look. Once something was on it, and I I had the cognitive understanding that it wasn't supposed to be there. Once I for me, uh-huh. that's when it started. So around four or five is probably when it manifested the most, just because there's a cognitive difference between being two and being uh-huh. four. Yeah, um, but as as early as I could figure out, something isn't supposed to be on me. This is not how I'm supposed to look something's wrong. It, it just clicked for me and in a very healthy way. <laughs> yeah. So did that carry through, I guess, all of your childhood, obviously? Did it did it get a lot worse as you got older? So it manifested in different ways. I know in the, in the article you and I discussed, there's four different types of OCD right. and you can have one, you can have four, you can change them out. A lot of times it's depending on your life seasons and what you've experienced. So around probably 10, 11, 12, I am a military brat. I grew up in a home where my dad was in the service and he was diagnosed with PTSD and traumatic brain injury. And so there were there was a lot of tension at home. He was trying to get help for kind of the demons he was facing from his career and his experience. And so as a preteen, early teenager, it wasn't necessarily I need to change my clothes because there's a stain on them. It just it became a little bit darker and deeper. I became very obsessed with the emotional state of my home, overthinking everything I was saying to not trigger anybody or upset anybody, trying to abate anything that could just upend my family that afternoon. It was very emotional at that point. And they they tend to call that more of a relational OCD. It's where you become very obsessed with with making sure relationships are perfect, you become hypercritical. And so for me at 10, 11, 12, I'm trying to subconsciously fix my dad and make my home okay. And I did not have that ability at 10, 11 or 12, but it quickly became an obsession for me. So it morphed over the years. It just revealed itself in different ways. 
Yeah. And I think as we get to be adults, we realize we really never have that ability to make everything okay. That's what we exactly. need. Got. So, <laughs> exactly. But as a child, just having to deal with that stress and that trauma in your home. Wow. So, you know, I love how you described OCD in your most recent article uh, to a mama with a mental health disorder. This uh, was such a great description, I thought. Uh, You said OCD is a mislabeled monster with a pendulum that doesn't swing between wanting a neat house and a color coordinating clothes. Rather, it lives as an unempathetic wrecking ball that crashes between fear-based, irrational anxiety and deep, dark feelings of hopelessness. It's a nervous disorder that brings no clarity, light, or sunshine when I organize my pantry with all the soup can labels facing the correct way. And then you get into the science of it. I liked this so much. You said, in short, the neurotransmitters in my brain don't allow serotonin to flow properly through my body, blocking its path. Serotonin is the chemical we need to have healthy mood, digestion, and sleep function, among other things. A person's overall health inside and out is built on the foundation of this biological chemical being properly distributed throughout the body. So um, I guess as you went and started to investigate this further, you learned, okay, this is actually physically, chemically what is happening in my body. And there's a relief to that. Uh, I know myself having been diagnosed with depression and anxiety uh, disorders and back in the day, and I've I've experienced a lot of uh, victory and healing there as well. But speak to that a little bit, exactly what's going on in the brain of someone who deals with a mental health issue. Is it hard to spark meaningful conversations with your kids? Whether you're a homeschool hero, planning activities for the next family vacation, or simply gathering around the dinner table, we've got something that can help. Introducing the Daily Family Conversation Starter by best-selling author Katie Clemens. This remarkable book offers 365 imaginative ways to connect with your children in just five minutes each day with prompts like, who made you laugh today? Or what would you do if you had a tail? These simple questions open up a world of laughter, curiosity, and deeper connections. From dinner time to sleepy time, the Daily Family Conversation Starter is your key to creating memories that will last a lifetime. Don't wait to transform your family's daily routine into an adventure of discovery and fun. Grab your copy of the Daily Family Conversation Starter today, wherever books are sold. Like you said, the the stereotypes are Probably the subtle reason I never thought to get help for it because you think OCD is just simply you you like things tidy, you like things organized. And so for me, that never fit how dark things were inside me. So that wasn't me. I wasn't going to ask about OCD or get help for that. But what I did say up front when I went to therapy, which was very non-stereotypical in my family, I come from good old Southern roots, a lot of Vietnam Right. Very much a pull, pull your life up by your bootstraps, lace them up tight, keep marching. So I was a little wary to be in therapy in the first place. But when I asked her, I said, can you please tell me what's going on scientifically? Because I don't want, I don't want a stereotype. I don't want a label. I don't want to just feel quote unquote crazy. I want to know why am I feeling this way? What is happening? And so she said, 
you know, OCD, it's been on the scene probably since the 80s scientifically, but they still don't know a ton about it. They do understand, like you mentioned from the article, that there's a, that the serotonin is not getting where it needs to be. And so what happens is essentially because my body does not understand how to function as far as adrenal glands go, I kind of live in fight or flight mentally. So everything is a potential threat. And I have to sit here and analyze whether or not this thought is a true threat or it's just a thought because humans have irrational, crazy, menacing thoughts all the time. But my brain is going to want to take each thought I have and and overanalyze it and pick it apart and understand its root, see if I truly identify with it. And so it's it's essentially like running a mental marathon. It's just, mm-hmm. just loops of a marathon run in my brain. And so it's very, it's very exhausting. There are some days I tell my husband, I have done nothing today, but I feel beyond drained. <laughs> Mentally, I can't describe to you how exhausted I am from just sitting here battling thoughts for a good 12 to 16 hours. I can relate to that. I have issues where I can be triggered into those kind of ruminate. Now, having dealt with depression and anxiety, you know, that has ruminating thoughts involved. But in terms of the OCD, the obsessive compulsive thoughts that someone can have, what triggers it for me is when I hear a tragic event happening, particularly something involving a child. If something like that happens, I am literally 24-7, weeks on end, morning, noon, and night, wake up at 2 a.m. to go to the bathroom, slams me in the face. I can't stop thinking about it. It's like it happened to me, only it didn't happen to me. It happened to usually some stranger or maybe someone I barely know, and I can't stop the thought. Is that That is obsessive-compulsive there, would it not be? Yes, so they call them essentially sticky thoughts. It's just yes. thoughts that once you have them, there's no, there is no shaking them. And, and right. what's with OCD is it doesn't matter how rational you are, right? What sense of like common sense you can speak to yourself, that sticky thought wins. It's, it's going mm-hmm. to have to say at the end of the day. And the compulsive part of OCD is just you stopping and literally letting that thought control your response to it. It, it is mm-hmm. you impulsively feel the need to wrestle with that thought and either mentally or physically do something to fix it. And you can't because it's nothing but a thought. Right. You don't have the serotonin to balance your mood, to balance the the adrenal glands that are saying, hey, this isn't a threat. Like this isn't a fight or flight thing. You're fine. Like this is a thought. Your brain, your brain literally thinks I need to face this and fight it and do something with it right now. It is. It's very biological. It's very chemical. And and see, here's what's frustrating. And I want to get into the, you know, the kinds of stereotypical thoughts you break down because like, you do it so well in the article. But what's frustrating being a Christian is you get in Christian communities that are like, well, you need to pray that away or you're not a strong enough believer or that's just demonic. And I'm not saying and I, I wrote two articles on mental health, too, that I'll I'll link here. I do believe there's a spiritual component to everything we go through because we're body, mind, and spirit. We can't divorce that. And what I found myself in for years and years was caught in between two different camps, a Christian camp that wanted to over-spiritualize everything and ignore the physical, 
as if the physical was, you know, and you never would do that with a diabetic or someone who had heart disease, right? You would never say, oh, well, you don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, you wouldn't take insulin. That's idiotic. And everybody knows that. On the flip side of it, I would get into the medical community that all too often ignored the spiritual, which mine had some, I had a spiritual, I had a cesspool that was feeding bad, feeding my bad brain chemistry. And that was my particular journey. So I, I think we need to have a balance. We need to recognize both aspects, but in particular, when you're dealing with OCD or like manic depressive, you know, you're, you're, and even your garden variety anxiety and depression, you're dealing with chemical issues that, and this is what's so frustrating because we're told to take every thought captive, right? That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. <laughs> yep. I know. And we're sitting here going, God, you're telling me to do this. And yet physically, it feels like I'm incapable of doing this. Right. Um. So how do you deal with that struggle that that and have you experienced that within the Christian community as well? That kind of there's almost a bias against you if you struggle with mental health because we're supposed to take these thoughts captive. So why aren't you doing it? Right. I think I think overall, I grew up in a very fundamentalist church with lots of rules. There was lots of legalism. And it was like you said, it was more of if if you lived a certain way, if you were holy enough, these things wouldn't be happening. About a year ago, I I won't mention his name just because that's not what this is about. But there was a very prominent pastor who came out and released a sermon on OCD and that it is demonic, that you are typically demonically possessed if you struggle with this. That that was hard for me. I internalized that for months. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, so coming from an unhealthy church and then you have people you don't know in church and mega church communities throwing these uh, very... I don't know that I believe I have the spiritual ability to dare say something like that, to tell someone if they are or are not demonically possessed or the state of their soul. I think that's a very delicate thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think sitting under so many voices that had so many opinions, for me, I eventually just had to sit down and say, okay, God is either very, very judgmental or he is very, very gracious. And I have got to pick one of the two. And I think just coming from a background that was was not loving, was not refining, was not pointing me toward healing, I just decided to believe that God was good and God was gracious and to see where rolling the dice on that character of God got me. And I think what I found was OCD might just be my thorn in the side, just like Paul had something where over and over he was like, God, just take it. Can you please take it? I'd love if you would take this away. Mm-hmm. And and all he gets in response is, you know, my grace is sufficient. My grace is, and it's, it is grace over and over. I'm giving mm-hmm. you grace because of this thing. And so I, I'm just learning within my faith to accept that healing is a process mm-hmm. and healing is not only it's not only raw and real, but it's refining. And I think as human beings, we need constant refinement. We we never arrive somewhere. And so if my refinement journey looks like struggling with OCD until the day I die, th- then, you know, what what greater honor than to know that I am that tethered to God, that he thinks enough of me, that I'm worth being refined and that I am worth I am worth knowing more about him and his goodness. And so that's the mindset I try to have on very dark days. It doesn't usually work, but that is the underlying foundation when I feel like I'm spiraling or or I start to feel bitterness or anger. 
mm-hmm. about the fact that OCD is something that there's just there's no cure. There's no magic button. Well, you know, he he refines us all with something. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just nobody escapes that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so everybody's got something and and I don't think any of us like the things he chooses. But we were right. The other thing either, you know, because everybody's getting refined yeah. with something. Right. Um, so, and I have found it very refining in my life as well. And I've, I've had victories though. And I've, you know, major victories. And for, for many years, for me personally, my struggle, like I said, you know, I do have the challenging brain chemistry. I still deal with that. But for 17 years of my life, the Lord was trying to heal some emotional wounds. And I thought they were too painful to deal with. I did not want to deal with them. He would put his finger on it and say, let's deal with this. And I would say, no, 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 no. And oddly enough, I was pregnant with my second child. I was in gut-wrenching pain. I'd gone off my meds just because I, I wanted to try to push through without them. And I it worked in my first pregnancy, didn't work in my second. And... I was on my knees with a toddler in the other room sleeping, crying out, wanting to die. And I remember I got to this place where I said, okay, God, I will do whatever it takes to be healed. I will do whatever you tell me to do. And that's a dangerous prayer, man. When you really mean it. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> that's when that's when God can really start moving things around because we hold things off the table. We will do anything but this or that. And so with I felt this peace wash over me like I'd never felt. And within minutes, he said, "Okay, let's deal with this wound. And I had just said I would do whatever it takes. And I had said no for 17 years to dealing with that wound. But when he brought it up, I had to trust him. And then what I came to realize was that dealing with that wound, that was the cesspool that my depression and anxiety was feeding on. That's my particular journey. Other people have different journeys. And I can say what ended up happening. I, I said, okay, God, I will deal with it. I don't want to make a phone call. I don't want to set up the time. I said, you do that. And he was like, I can do that. I'm God, right? And it happened. It was beautiful. He brought healing. And once that cesspool was gone, I was able to find techniques and ways. I went to cognitive behavioral therapy at one point and find ways to deal with it that did not require medicine, which was good because in my particular case, my medicine stopped working altogether. And I just I kept compounding my side effects because I was having to double up. And so but God has a path, whether that, you know, and I thank God for the medicine when it worked and how it helped me. And I I believe in that. I believe, you know, I would never tell somebody that you're, you know, you shouldn't be on medicine or anything like that. Uh, You, But God is a great physician. If he chooses to use medicine, praise God. If he chooses to, at some point, like with me, you know, go a different way. And I still struggle, but I've, I've experienced some major victories. And I think he wants to bring us those major victories in life. But we have to trust him and walk with him. I want to I want to dig into the thoughts that you break down here. I think they're so great. You go over four different kinds of OCD thoughts that that people deal with. I didn't know. I didn't know all of this until reading your article. It was so helpful. Can you break those down for us? What they are? And yeah, so the first one is symmetry OCD. And that tends to be where the stereotype comes from. There are yeah. people who truly do have an obsession with the crooked picture frames, the soup can labels spacing out, 
But what makes it so gut-wrenching for people with symmetry OCD, it's not simply, I just want my pantry to be clean. There are all of these what-if thoughts that come behind it. Like my favorite is, well, if the picture frame's crooked, that means it could be loose. And what if my child walks underneath this picture frame? And what if it falls and hits my child in the head? There's all these ripple thoughts. And so it's never as simple as liking something clean or tidy. But things need an order or else something bad will happen. And so it's just this what if war that symmetry OCD catalyzes. I don't struggle with that too much. Typically, it comes up every now and then. But that is, I think, where the stereotype mm-hmm. comes from. I think people took that and ran with it. And, and it's just become something that it's not. But something else that people tend to struggle with harm OCD. I do struggle with that one. It can be very dark. It can be anything from overthinking if you ran someone off the road while you're driving like you're you're not you went through a yellow light but it was yellow and you could have went too fast and you could have caused someone else to wreck and you didn't know it so let's turn around our car and make sure that we didn't hurt someone I got in a wreck at 24 years old turning my car around because I thought I'd hurt somebody else and I made an illegal turn trying to get a check on them and someone hit me and it was my fault oh wow so it's it's real. It's very real. Harm OCD can work like that. It can work sexually where you're afraid to change your child's diaper because you're afraid you might touch them inappropriately and sexually harm them. So my compulsion, which which I've I've fought pretty well, but is not fantastic. My compulsion has been on Amazon to buy. There's diaper rash and cream silicone brushes now where you can brush it on baby instead of your hand having to like like wipe down your child. So like I've stocked up on silicone brushes on days when I'm like, I'm afraid. I, I just don't know if I want to change my child's diaper because what if I touch them and hurt them and I don't know it and they're too young to tell me that I've hurt them somehow. So Harmo CD is pretty dark. I think it's probably one of the darker ones. That's I struggle with that one a lot. I also struggle with mental thoughts and taboo rituals, which is basically religious OCD is like the street name for it. It's where... A lot of times it comes from people who come from backgrounds that are very legalistic. It's very much ritual, cult-like backgrounds, and you become obsessed with God's opinion of you to the extent that it is very hard to believe in a gracious God. You become very quickly obsessed with works and proving yourself, and then there's perfection that comes in the middle of that, your, your inability to balance just being good enough for God, which was hard for me. Like I said, I grew up in a very fundamental legalistic church. And so having OCD, having that chemical that's already not working correctly, being in a community like that catalyzed that. That's the perfect storm. (laughs) No, no, exactly. And same time, my dad's battling PTSD. So just for me, it was just a lot of components at once. And I think, let's see, so I did symmetry harm, mental thoughts, and taboo rituals. What is my contamination? Yeah. Okay. I struggle with that one. How? (laughs) Contamination. And that's another one that's pretty stereotyped. Just washing your hands a ton, using Germex constantly. Uh, By the time I was 10, I had given myself permanent eczema. Like I damaged my skin so much using sanitizer as an eight or nine-year-old that the dermatologist was like, this isn't going to be as simple as as just using lotion once a day. You've you've damaged your skin permanently. So to this day, I have raw red hands. They crack and they bleed easily. 
because as a child, I was obsessed with germs. And, and what if I brought something home to somebody I love? I, I had a classmate when I was in the fourth grade who was just a year and a half older than me and he passed away. It's very unexpected, the death of a child. Yeah. I didn't understand it. I couldn't rationalize it. And so in my head, he must have gotten some bad germ and died. And so I'm not getting a bad germ. I don't want something to happen to me. And so next thing you know, I am 10 years old carrying bottles of sanitizer with me everywhere. I go. And and so different life seasons will spike different what ifs and different mm-hmm. obsessions. And, and I think, unfortunately, for me, just a lot of them happened at once between the ages of about eight to 12, eight to 13 death. I'd never known children could die. So, you know, experiencing that with the contamination, my dad just having lots of relational tension at home Mm -hmm. and unhealthy church culture with mental thoughts. So it was there's four of them and about three of them hit me at once as a kid. And it just it probably took a good 10 to 12 years for me to recognize I've got to do something about this. (laughs) This is not this is not how you function healthily as a human being. No, bless your heart. Yeah, that. So now you were officially diagnosed, I guess, with OCD. What else did what what else were you diagnosed with? Yeah. At age 25, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And I was also diagnosed with secondary post-traumatic stress disorder. They said this is newer on the block. But what they've discovered is, especially with children, if you grew up in a home where someone had PTSD and it wasn't resolved, they weren't medicated, you quite literally adopt trauma from living with that person who has unhealed trauma. And so I have secondary PTSD just because my my dad was he's a big six foot two gruff tatted army paratrooper, like just a big old bad dude. He didn't get help for seven years just because you were told big, bad, rough, tough men don't talk. They don't go to therapy. And so I was I was in it for seven years as a child, just Mm -hmm. That trim, that PTSD was so prevalent in my home. As a child, I had traumatic stress from the PTSD that was inside my house. So I got both of those. And then when COVID hit, I seemed to dip my toes, unfortunately, into some pretty dark depression. My contamination OCD went through the roof, which mm-hmm. I think it manifested for a lot of people. I think a yeah. lot of people became quickly obsessed with with germs and the fear of being around people. Um, so in 2020, I, I finally, I finally was diagnosed with depression as well. So those are kind of the three things I, I don't, I wouldn't say I balance, but I, I deal with. Uh, so what are some of the things that you have learned to do then that have really helped you coping with the mental health issues you have? Being brutally honest with my circle, with my mm-hmm. people. Again, like I said, my family did not, we didn't do going to therapy. You didn't, Uh you didn't talk about stuff. And so what, what ended up happening is I awkwardly go and then awkwardly tell my family who's all about, let's be quiet. Let's not say anything. Hey, I have three mental health (laughs) disorders. I go to therapy now and I like my therapist and I like how all of this is going. So kind of almost breaking that cycle in my family and being brutally honest and saying, no, here's what's going on. I need to deal with this. And and it was hard, but either you can accept that and you can be supportive or, or just understand there are pieces of me you no longer have access to. There are boundaries. 
So you have two options. You can be supportive or I will have to put up some boundaries to to heal and to deal with what I have going on. And so being very open and honest with my family, with my spouse. And then for me, I fought medication for a year and a half because I just, Mm -hmm. I felt like that for a while was failure. I was like, I don't mind talking to somebody. We we can do this. I talk to people all the time when stuff's hard. Medicine? Mm-mm, no, I that that's failure. But eventually, I I decided to take medicine. I take Zoloft every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just staying on medicine has been a huge thing for me. And I would say after that, finding this was the hardest part for me finding a church that speaks to mental health and mm-hmm. recognizes. That there is a, a true, like you said, there's a spiritual component to it, but they also welcome you and understand that you're also physically and mentally broken too. And they're there to offer that healing and that mm-hmm. support and that encouragement. That was huge for me, is being willing to find a church that sees mental health struggles for what they are mm-hmm. to have that support. Yeah, we really need that because I I know I I can remember one time early on in my journey, I was talking to someone, a family member. They didn't know that I was taking medication for depression. And they said something to the effect that, you know, people who do that, you know, who are on medicine for depression and stuff, they just don't have enough faith. I mean, like that was just, you know, such a blow to someone who is struggling, yeah, battling something. But, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about, I think this is really interesting. Your your beautiful your book is so beautifully written. You're an artist. You're such a, a great writer. And you go into, I love your descriptions of growing, growing up as a Georgia peach. And you talked about the skyscraper pine trees and mosquitoes and their breeding creeks and wild daisies. And just, uh, just, it's such a beautiful, exquisite description of, of growing up. And I thought of the double-edged sword because I, I love classic literature and I'm a writer and I'm, I, you know, as an actor for many years. Actually, dip my toe back into it. I'm teaching a, a, a comedy improv class to kids. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I know. We're having a blast. So, <laughs> uh, but I was thinking, like, you know, some of my favorite writers uh, and artists, like Vincent Van Gogh, obviously. I mean, when you cut your ear off, you've got some mental health issues, <laughs> right? <laughs> I would venture to say I'm not a thing. I didn't ever meet the guy, but I'm guessing that's what, and he was in a mental health. He was in a sanitarium, I think, at some at one point. Uh, you got F. Scott. Fitzgerald, uh, Ernest Hemingway, um, you think of more modern, Kurt Cobain, you think of uh, Robin Williams, brilliant, brilliant artists, <laughs> all struggled with mental health. And you're an artist and I'm an artist. Uh, do you see a big connection there? I think that's interesting. And I'm saying this for, you know, obviously, this is something we deal with in our parenting journey, but we also have to recognize this in our kids, that those that are a little more artsy, I've noticed with my own kids, those that are a little more analytical, more artsy, they struggle more with the anxiety, the depression. Have you found that to be the case with you? Oh, yes. Yes. As a, as a child, I would come home furious. This was another like little nugget where looking back, I'm like, oh, that was that was obsessive compulsive disorder. If I had an art project and my teacher came behind me and tried to fix something, I wouldn't give it to my mom. I'd say this isn't mine. I didn't do it from start to finish. I know. She helped, so it doesn't count. I had it right where I wanted it. It was supposed to look a certain way, and she messed it up. And so I'd I would I'd throw them away. Like when I took them home, I'd throw them away. I didn't want anybody to see that because it was no longer mine. And so I think that's that's such a good point that you bring up because I think creative minds are hyper aware. 
they're hyper aware, they're, they're senses. I, I feel like we almost have what they actually do call sensory overload. We are hyper aware of sights and sounds and the way things smell and the way people interact with each other. Because I think we're subconsciously looking for beauty. I'm always looking for what's beautiful and things in nature and the way I decorate my house and the conversations I have with people. But on the flip side of that coin is while you're looking for beauty in a dark and fallen world, you're going to find a lot of things that aren't pretty and aren't beautiful and are messed up and all the lines aren't straight and the picture frames are crooked. And and so I think that's where a lot of artists struggle is in this like desperate pursuit for what's beautiful in a broken world. You just find a lot that's not. And then your brain has to wrestle with all that. Oh, yes. That's so well put. And, you know, it reminds me of this this story. Uh, I Years ago, I think I was watching Oprah. I wasn't necessarily a big fan, um, particularly theologically, but <laughs> that's beside the point. She had a guest on her show one time who was autistic, very high-functioning autistic yeah. woman. And there was some new medications that had come out that really helped her to come out of her shell to be able to describe what's going on in the autistic world for a child who's str- battling that. And... She talked about how when you would whisper into the ears of an autistic child, it sounded to them like you were screaming at the top of their your lungs. And if you would just touch their arm, it felt like you were squeezing it with all of your might. So this sensory input, this overload that would happen on a physical level for children who are autistic really resonated with me as someone who struggled from depression because I, I immediately thought, oh, it's emotional autism is kind of what what I felt that I had because I know I would have this stimulus that shouldn't cause this kind of reaction that I'm having, right? right? You know, somebody sneezed or whatever for you or, or for that, <laughs> right? Finer thing, you know, that I should be able to process this. I know that logically. And yet here I am in my closet or crying my guts out. Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, or this ruminating thought just to, I can't get rid of it. And so that was really helpful to me to see it through that lens of understanding this is it's it is an emotional thing, but there is a biological chemical component that causes right. us to not be able to process the emotions. That being said, one other story that impacted me in such a huge way on my journey Personally, this really helped me because I labeled myself for many years and this is just the way I am. And that prevented me sometimes from receiving some victory. I, I met this man as a minister at my church. He had a son who was profoundly autistic, could not speak a word. He told me that he, his son, who, like I said, profoundly autistic, could not speak a word. He said, I never say that my son is autistic. I say that my son battles autism. And battles can be won. That blew my mind. While I am not autistic and my I don't have a child who is, I did understand that connection of uh, that hyper awareness. And I knew that, okay, I, I stopped seeing myself as a depressed person or an anxiety riddled person or a person who is mentally ill. I, I, I chose, I said, okay, I'm not wearing that label. I battle depression. I battle anxiety. I may battle mental illness, and so may my kids. But battles can be won. And when I shifted my thinking there, it really profoundly impacted me because you stop seeing yourself as a victim. Because as we talked about earlier, everybody has their refining, <laughs> right, the thing that God <laughs> right. reminds us with. So we all have that. And we 
have to come to expect that. God is going to use that. And he, according to scripture, Romans 8, 28, he's going to use it for our good, isn't he? What good have you seen through your journey? How has God used that for your good and for his glory? I think one of the biggest things for me is I had this pivotal moment and it was once I was diagnosed, it was all in that season of just learning what had been going on for so long. I had loved God out of fear because I lived in fear of him, not a healthy fear, not a reverend. I finally got to a place where I could like him. It wasn't just, oh, I love you. I like you. And I think so often there's so many people in my Christian walk I love because the Bible tells me so, but I don't like I don't want to hang out with you. I don't want to get coffee with you. I don't I don't care about you or who you are as a person. I'm just loving you from afar because that's all I can muster. And so I think one of one of the biggest things God's done for me is he's allowed this season to let me wrestle with his character and discover that he's not just lovable because he has to be. He's likable. He's a God you can want. And so I think that has been so so crucial in my healing and my understanding of of grace. And and it's just an honor to know that I can pass down this gracious, good, kind nature of God to my my child. I can tell him, no, he's good. He's kind. He's gracious. And, and I think that's the neat thing is the, the biggest goodness and glory, the glory I believe he will receive and the goodness I have received is that there's now a new legacy in my family. It, it's I, my son will not know. Just pull pull up your bootstraps and tighten them. Don't right. say you're fine. Suck it up. He will know there are seasons you won't be. And there's a good and gracious God. And there are so many ways he's blessed people to help each other through these things. And so I think that will be his glory is, is a new legacy or a new generation of of believing he's good and he's kind and he's supportive. And so I think I'm seeing that now more and more being pregnant and expecting my first baby. And, and that's been an honor. I've been able to sleep at night w- with a newfound peace that, you know, I think sometimes people live their whole lives and never fully understand their purpose or where, where did I, where did I make a difference? And, and I think, I think this is it for me is just possibly this idea of starting a new generation of, of people who believe God's good. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, obviously God, you, you've walked through this, the, the things that we deal with in our life, those refining things that God uses, he uses in our lives so that we can help other people who are dealing right. with the same thing. And that's exactly what you're doing with your book and with your articles and speaking out on this topic. You know, I'm reminded, it's weird that just yesterday and today, well, yesterday I was going through one of my devotional books and this this thought really helped me because we're struggling with something in particular, actually a parenting issue. And, and this in the devotion, it was talking about how we so often in life feel like we're entitled to things being good and easy because God is good. God is good. God is love. And so my life should be filled with love and goodness. And and we're not entitled to that. It was talking about how what our expectation, if if that's our expectation that everything is supposed to be good, we're going to be disappointed, right? We right. There's no other option because it's not. That's not the reality of what we face here. But when we have, and that's a really, you know, oddly enough, an entitlement mentality that we try to get out of our kids. We don't want them to feel entitled to all of these things in life. Right. And yet, as a Christian, so often, well, God is good. God is love. I'm entitled to these things because look what I do. I did this, 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 and this. And Lord, I tithe and I go to church and I read my Bible and I praise you and I put you first in our home and I did this in my parenting and with my kids. So I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z. I'm 
entitled to these results. I'm not. I'm not entitled to that. My expectation and what he was saying about it was actually one of the, I don't know if you've ever read the Book of Mysteries by Jonathan Kahn. It was one of the days. I'll post it in the links. It was so helpful to me because I need, I'm trying and it's, it's a hard shift to shift my thinking. That's not what I'm entitled to. I'm entitled to, because of my sin and my sinful falling nature, I'm entitled to hell. I'm entitled. That's my, that's what I deserve. And when I see that that's what I deserve, then we can look at all the good things that happen in our lives. Right. Blessings is true blessing because I got what I didn't deserve there. Okay. Over here. Yeah. I'm struggling through some issues. Even there, God's going to use those hard things I'm struggling through for my good because he's promised to do that. But I'm not entitled to an easy, blissful life without any kind of health or mental challenges. I'm not entitled to that. I'm not entitled to perfect kids that 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 make all the right choices simply because I did all of these things. That's not how that works. We tend to think it is, but it's not. And I'm so I kind of shifting my thinking there, realizing that I have an entitlement mentality, even w- whether it's with my health or in my parenting, that God is going to use those difficult places for good and looking at all the blessings that helps me to look and focus on the blessings and not focus on the challenges as much. So that's really, I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that in there. That's a bonus. That's a bonus. But um, <laughs> I love that you said that because I don't know if I have my phone on me, but I, I recently posted a poem. So this month is like Maple uh-huh. Rhyme, the National Poetry Writing Month. Uh-huh. And and one of the prompts was speak to to a decade in your life. What do you come up with? And so I'm 29. And so I was like, well, it's, it's, I'm telling my twenties essentially goodbye. What, what are my thoughts? What are my feelings? And I don't have the exact words on me right now, but essentially what I ended up writing, and this was not the plan. I didn't know where this was going, but I wrote the whole piece on, you know, in your twenties, you have your whole life ahead of you. You're supposed to be in good health. There's not a lot of financial burdens yet. This is when in theory, like you said, all the good things, this is when stuff is just supposed to be good. And I ended up writing about how. I I never knew joy when everything was going well. I might have felt happy to an extent, but true joy that had purpose and joy that had been cultivated from hope, that didn't come until bad stuff happened. Mm-hmm. And just the yuck of life. And then I had to figure out what is hope. I had to figure out what is joy. And I think it is such a beauty from ashes sort of thing that to what is good without bad? What is life without death? I don't mm-hmm. think you can appreciate one without enduring the other. And so you have two choices. You can either be bitter. And like you said, you can question, like, why are you allowing this to happen? I'm doing everything right. You can sit in that bitterness and, and that frustration or or you can let what comes come and understand that there's something more beautiful being cultivated because bad stuff's going to happen either way. You know, it's going to happen. And so you have two choices. And I think that's where I'm at with with OCD is I I didn't like God until I dealt with this. And I'm not sure I ever would have. I think I would have lived my life afraid of him and just Mm -hmm. loving him by default because I was terrified of him. And and what a joy in an odd sense to struggle with something that makes me able to like God, that there's a trade off there that's 100 percent worth it. That is amazing because you would think logically, 
the fact that you struggled this <laughs> it should make you go further away from God. How dare you? But it is, what are we looking? He is our salvation in this. He is our hope in this. And my favorite scripture, the one that I and I had come to see as a reality, and I pray that it will be a, continue to be a reality in all of my struggles, but was Psalms 40 verses one through three. I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me. He heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Yeah, we go through some pits in our life, but he is committed. I believe uh, he is committed to bringing us out of every single pit that we find ourselves in, whether that's from mental health issues or parenting issues or other health kinds of issues or vocational issues, whatever it is, wherever we find ourselves in that pit, he is committed to bringing us out of that pit and putting our feet on a rock and giving us a new song to sing. So it sounds like you have a new song. Yeah. And I, and you're still learning to sing it. It's an ongoing song. And so oh, am I. You're sure. No, for sure. I mentioned that in my book that uh-huh. I think when I get to heaven, and and I'm talking to Jesus. I have a feeling there's some button where he can replay so I can see what what his earthly ministry looked like. And I have a feeling, whether it was a season or just a sleepless night, I have a feeling he willingly fought OCD. I have no doubt mm-hmm. he fought obsessive thoughts to 100% do nothing more than say, one day there's going to be a girl named Peyton Garland who's going to need to know I like her. And she's mm-hmm. going to need to know that she can relate to me. Right. And I will endure her hell on earth. So I can defeat it for her. Like, I want to be that relatable. And I think that's been the new song for me is he's he is so loving and gracious. And I think it's because he's so willing to suffer and he's so willing to to suffer for us. And and so I think and, and I could be totally wrong, but but I just I see him as someone who understands my pain because he willingly embodied it. And I can appreciate him for that. I, I can sing about a God who's that kind to me. Yeah, you put in your book, I loved this question you asked. I remained inclined to inquire if the desert nearly destroys us, why does God drag us there? But as you were just talking about that, Jesus went out to the desert. He dealt with obsessive compulsive thoughts. I believe in the desert. You know, sometimes I think our our thoughts are caused chemically and sometimes they could be outside spiritual forces. The enemy certainly can play. I think the enemy exacerbates what right. we deal yes. with, you know, because Absolutely. we have a little yeah, I don't want to say that it's because I, I think that's harmful to people to say, well, it's just demonic or it's just the devil all the time. Yeah. But he knows what we struggle with and he is going to press in hard and fast on any area that we're already struggling with or our kids are struggling with. So as parents, we obviously need to have really strong mental health and and prioritize that and being able to recognize that and help our kids through those struggles, whether we ourselves deal with it or like in your home right. where it yeah. wasn't a fully acknowledged in your home and you weren't really given the support that you needed at that time. So I, right. I think this is going to be really helpful for parents. Hey, maybe, I, you know, my husband blissfully, blessedly is very rock strong, stable in terms of he doesn't deal with mental health issues. And I'm so grateful, but he's very sympathetic to myself and some of my kids that 
you know, where we struggle, where the artsy ones. <laughs> right. So um, having those people to go to, I think is so helpful. So uh, I had one other thing here. I loved how you ended your article. You said whether you are physically, this was, I think, the uh, to the mama with a mental health disorder, whether you are physically fit as a fiddle or mentally as strong as they come, you will pass down your simple nature. Such is the fate of humans born into a flawed world. However, your diagnosis, compulsions, tics, triggers, and panic attacks are the very avenues to God's way out of this worldwide plague. They are what bring you to your knees. They are what humble you and call you to admit that only God can fix us. And when you've been to such low places in desperation for something, someone who far outweighs your capabilities as a mama, you, my friend, have become the imperfectly perfect disciple to the kiddo peeking around the corner watching you pray. The teenager quietly fighting the same anxiety they hear you bravely talk about. The adult child who sees you seek godly counsel to become as effective as possible for the gospel. And then you say, this is so beautiful, to the mother with a mental health disorder, you are right where you need to be equipped with all the necessary grace to do God's holy work in your child's life. These are such beautiful and encouraging words for us as parents, and they relate what we want to teach to our children and help our children to understand if they struggle in the same way, if they battle in the same way. So I can't thank you enough, Peyton, uh, for sharing your testimony, your your wisdom, your hard-earned advice with us today. Please tell our listeners where they can learn more about you, your writing, your ministry, and your book, Tired, Hungry, and Kind of Faithful, Where Exhaustion and Exile Meet God. Yeah. So Instagram is my my big place. That's where I spend most of my time. It's just at Peyton M. Garland. You can find my book on Amazon. And I would say outside that, there's a link in my Instagram to my blog called Uncured and Okay. And so that's where I love to to get into even more long form content details about some of the things I struggle with. So I'd love for you to pop over to the newsletter as well. Oh, I will post all of those links in the show notes, which will be on Life Audio and my website eventually. I'm a little behind. <laughs> Spring is a very busy season for us. So um, this has been so wonderful, Peyton. God wants us to have a sound mind. He has given this. He says he's given us this in First Timothy 2, 7, that he's given us not a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. And yet so many of us parents struggle in this area and our kids struggle in this area, not because we are subpart Christians, but because many people have biological chemical challenges and we do have an enemy that loves to exasperate those challenges that we face. But these challenges bring us, as you have so beautifully described, to utter and complete dependence on God for our healing, our deliverance, our salvation. And that's where we all need to be, whatever God is using to refine us. We are depending on God for our freedom, for our future, and for our children. Thank you so much for joining us today, Peyton. I know that you blessed a lot of mamas and papas and a lot of kiddos. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Next time on Christian Parent Crazy World, we will be tackling one of the biggest needs for parents in the body of Christ. That is what to do if you have a prodigal child. I have talked about this topic before on CPCW. I've written on it as well. And to date, the biggest response I've ever received from a podcast or an article came when I addressed this 
topic, and I offered a list of scriptures to pray over lost children. I was shocked at how many new subscribers I got overnight with that one resource that is still offered to new subscribers, by the way, on my website. Parents are desperate for hope and for strategy when they have lost children. Well, I have a new resource to share with you in the next two episodes, actually. One episode just wouldn't cut it. Lane Lawson Craft was a mother of three prodigal children. Yes, three. And she battled until each one of her kids came back to the faith. How did she do that, you might ask? Well, Lane has written all about it in a brand new book, and we're going to talk about that in the next two episodes. If you aren't dealing with this, mamas and papas, you know someone who is. Trust me, you don't want to miss this two-part series that will give you hope, encouragement, and most of all, strategy to win back the lost children in your life. I want to thank you for joining me today. Look, I know. There are a lot of things you could be listening to right now, and I really appreciate that you took this time to spend with me. I hope you will join me for my next podcast when we take aim at some aspect of our culture that threatens to derail our parenting and steal our kids' faith. If you enjoyed this episode of Christian Parent Crazy World, would you consider telling a friend and sharing it on social media and giving it a good review over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and following me on Facebook and Instagram? Oh, oh, and maybe you could say that Christian Parent Crazy World is the best podcast you've ever heard in your entire life. Uh, Just a thought. Uh, and be sure to check out my website, which is katherinesegers.com. That's Catherine with a C. I have lots of articles and resources there that will help you on your parenting journey. And if you subscribe, I will be sure to send you some really cool free stuff and notify you of future podcasts, articles, and blogs. I want to end this and every episode with a word of encouragement. God gave you your kids, your specific kids for a reason. That's because you hold the key to unlocking who God created them to be. We'll see you next time. Christian Parent Crazy World is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hi, I'm Zach. And I'm Randy. And we're from Salty Saints Podcast. We're a theology and apologetics podcast. To find out more, subscribe at lifeaudio.com.